welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Joe Boris, and I am here with Diane Martinez. And Diane, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but I never know what title to give you. Like, I can't say, you know, Mayor Martinez, because I don't think you're the mayor anymore, but you were, but I can't talk to you. Yeah, I was, I was a mayor two times, but I'm happy to give you like the short rundown for all the titles that kind of relate to the work that I'm I'm doing now and that might be, be important to your listeners. So I'll give it, give it a go. The reason why I'm here today is I'm chair of East Bay Community Energy, which is a community choice aggregator. We supply electricity and energy to a host of territories here in the East Bay of California, including Oakland and Berkeley and my city, which is the city of Emeryville. Yay. And I'm on the board. Yay, Emeryville. You might find Emeryville on the news for our fun. We've got a we've we've got a thirst trap mayor who loves transportation. He he's at at John Bowders, if anyone wants to check him out. I, I was but, wondering how far we were gonna get into this before it got weird. And right there, <laughs> we have a thirst trap mayor. Got yeah, it started out weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's our mayor right now, but I also, I sit on city council with him. I've been on Emeryville city council since 2014. And I also serve on uh, the board of Velos, which is a nonprofit dedicated mm-hmm. to educating folks on transitioning to EVs and my day job, because I don't really get paid for those other jobs, <laughs> um, much more than a stipend. My day job is as director of the Garfield foundation, which is a family uh, philanthropy that gives grants to environmental organizations. So I get to I get to think about electrification in that role too. Well, that's awesome. So I, I have to say that I feel a little bit better about that because number one, that's a lot. And number two, that's not even everything. You're also a board member of the Stop Waste Group that's responsible for, you know, re- reducing waste overall and like, you know, reuse, recycle, reduce, all that good stuff, right? So like all that, there's, yeah. there's even more here. I mean, you're just kind of like, but, you know, it speaks to clean technical, like everything that you're doing is in service of and stewardship of not only your community, but also the environment kind of as a whole. And within that is, you know, conversations about microgrids, conversations about home solar, conversations yep. about net metering. And, you know, all of that stuff is, is just just really cool. <laughs> No, I think, you know, you can't look at any of these policy areas in isolation. And I, you know, I had the fortune of meeting you at the Electrify Expo at our industry day in Long Beach. And that was fantastic. But it's I coming from um, local government, I get to see not only private industry getting into that field and helping us push along all of our objectives and in you know reducing greenhouse gases, but I get to see what the benefits are in our communities and who is being directly impacted. There are people behind all of these policies and all of these moves, you know, with our capital markets. There are people whose lives are impacted that are made better. That you know, there and there are people who are victims 
of the fossil fuel industry and those health impacts and the economic impacts and the fact that, you know, to get me started on freeways, tearing apart urban neighborhoods. Um, oh, I'm in Oak Park, Illinois. Fuel. So if you know the history of Oak Park and the West side of Chicago, you know, putting in that 290 and effectively, you know, segregating neighborhoods that had been historically black neighborhoods for decades. I mean, yeah. I, yeah and this is, this is actually a great segue into what we've been talking about because, you know, you and I were talking about the idea, the notion of equity when it came to EV adoption and electrification of mobility and the idea that, you know, the people who stand to benefit the most from widespread electrification are these people who live in these heavily populated, not only urban environments, but also, I would say, industrial environments, like people who live near the ports, people who live near the oh, train yes. stations, who live near the freeways and who are breathing in all these diesel particulates. And you see it. You see that they have, you know, the families have higher incidence of asthma, respiratory illness. You even have higher incidence of heart attack and long-term heart disease. And this yep. is all because they're breathing in these emissions. Absolutely. Joe, I was that kid. I, I have lived. So in California, we have state legislation that kind of screens, you know, whether you are a, a low income or a disadvantaged community. And we have tools to see, you know, what are the impacts of these environmental regulations on these communities. And so I have lived in these low, low income disadvantaged communities my whole life, except for a year and a half when I lived in an in-law unit in the hills. But nice. I've yeah. I've lived in them my whole life. And when I was a kid, I was a kid who was, you know, picked up from PE and brought straight to the emergency room because I was having asthma. Yeah. And that's unfortunately, you know, here in our territory, we've got thousands of those visits a year from those kids in urban areas who exactly they're at the intersection of highways. And here um, in the East Bay of California, they're proximate to our port, which is spewing diesel. So, you know, my agency is working on those solutions here on the ground to try to get those, you know, medium and heavy goods uh, electrified, get the port electrified and help get families, get their vehicles electrified and their homes electrified. So we can, you know, like really cut all of those risks down for those people who've been on the front lines. Yeah. And it's great. And, you know, I love the way that you phrase this you you use the terminology of warfare you use the terminology of battle because for a lot of people who are living in the suburbs and have nice clean air and they drive their teslas and they're they've got their ninety thousand dollar rivian on order and you know they're going to pay for that in cash because you know they're doing better in the stock market or not these days but typically <laughs> <laughs> like, right. We don't have to worry about capital gains tax this year. Just relax, everybody. Just don't look at it. Keep putting money into the 401k. Don't look at it. Look at it in June. Don't worry about it now. But no, but in all seriousness, for a lot of people living in suburbia or rural areas that you know have the big diesel pickup truck, the idea of climate change and the idea of much more directly, the idea of you know having direct harm coming from those emissions. It is almost hypothetical. Like it's hard for them to understand because they don't live in it. And right. to hear you use those terms, it really is a fight for survival for so many people. 
you know, when we talk about electrification, like you said, you and I met at Electrify Expo, and a lot of that is about different kinds of mobility, different modes of mobility, not just electric cars, right? But even but we but electric cars are like the the most visible aspect of that, right? Like everybody knows yeah. what a car is, and an EV seems like the most visible part of that. You know, the the Inflation Reduction Act for the first time is now giving tax reduction, tax relief, and and rebates on used EVs, on secondhand EVs, including hybrids, you know, do you think that's a significant thing for these lower income rural or urban areas? Or do you think that it, it's, it, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll just tell you how I'm trying to lead you, but I'll just tell you what I think. It's kind of frustrating to see that because it's a tax credit, right? And if you don't have that level of tax burden, it doesn't actually help you. And a lot of the people who have the least tax burden have the lowest income. And like, yeah. this doesn't actually benefit the people who need it most. You know, my issue right now is with supply. Like they're, they, yeah. you know, the, we, can, we can have a million credits, but if there actually isn't a secondary market because our supply for the primary market just hasn't allowed people to shift out of their, those first vehicles. And the thing is like these vehicles are lasting a long time. Like I bought my Tesla in oh, 2019. Yeah. It's going to be good for, you know, till I expect 2029, I bet if I take care of it. Oh um, yeah. So I mean, the, the current numbers are something like after 10 years of battery, of, after 10 years of use, a properly maintained battery still has 80% of its charge. So if you started with 250 miles, you still have 200 miles of charge. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think we do need those incentives. I think that I think we got to throw everything at the wall while we have the energy to do that. So that the fact that we got both houses of Congress to pass a piece of legislation that our, our president crafted, like it's that it's kind of amazing that it happened. And I don't know if Biden gets enough credit for it. And it's it's taking that, you know, energy and it's all going to boil down to the details. So there, you know, there are specific incentives that have been laid out, and but there are other incentives where it's not so clear exactly how the spending is going to go. And that's where an agency like East Bay Community Energy, which is on the ground, um, it's it's a public agency, but it deals a lot with the private sector. So we do these big power purchase agreements that allow the private industry to put wind and solar in places that are really close to our communities and provide jobs in our communities. And we have those connections with cities because our board member is made up of mayors and city council members from our constituent cities. So, you know, we've got all these connections and we're we're exploiting them, frankly, to, you know, one of our big things that we're doing that we're focused on is DC fast charging and and bringing the benefits of DC fast charging to people who haven't had those opportunities in the past. So, you know, when when the opportunities come, you know, because we all saw the ads from the big seven automakers on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, when those when that pipeline comes into fruition and we've got enough EVs to go around for all the people who are interested in buying them, we need to make sure that people have adequate places to to charge their cars. Where I live in the East Bay, 47% of the people who live in our territory are renters. And for the people who live in multifamily housing, they're not renting a single family house. 90% of those homes are over 50 years old. So, 
you know, unless they have an angel landlord who is like, oh, I'm going to connect all the dots for my tenants and yeah. grab them a sub panel upgrade and get them at home charging. We need to make it happen for our communities and we can do so rather quickly. So we're like, we, we are the type of agency that can take, you know, translate the billions of dollars in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and turn it into local benefits for people on the ground. And at EBCE, we're doing that, you know, with an equity lens. We're looking at where are these most needed? Because I think that the way that the IRA is, is contemplated, it kind of gives benefit to, you know, putting chargers next to freeways. Going back to earlier in our conversation, how I feel about freeways, it's a way for, you know, people of a higher class to get in and out of cities yeah. and live in suburbs and, you know, in I'm a, I'm an urban dweller, like in my whole life, I've lived like a helicopter is what I would go to sleep to <laughs> as a kid in L.A. Oh, yeah, like absolutely. That was, the sound of high speed chases was my lullaby. And so, you know, I <laughs> those are the people. These are the neighborhoods. These these are my neighbors. These are the people who I think, you know, deserve that to, to have a chance to, you know, benefit from this infrastructure. Yeah. So th there's two things you, you touched on that. Like one of them is like one of my favorite EV rants ever. So I'm going to go off on that for the 87th time. Yeah. Uh, you've it. already heard this one. Give it 30 seconds. You already know what I'm going to say. So I love the idea of putting DC fast chargers out into a public space because there's this notion among EV buyers, whenever someone says, but where am I going to charge this? The first thing that comes out is, well, you're just going to charge it at home. It's like, no, you're not. Most people aren't going to be able to do that. Most people are renters. Most people don't own the home they live in, even if they are in a single family home. So that that's not really an option for a huge percentage of people. But that's okay. I don't see that as a barrier to EV adoption in the same way that not having a gas station in your house is not a barrier to gasoline adoption, right? You plan yeah. your day, you know, you go, you know, when you have to go to the gas station, that's going to be 10, 15 minutes out of your trip with the DC fast charger. You know, a lot of vehicles now are charging from zero to 80% within 20 minutes. You know, you're going to have a 20 minute stop when you're buying groceries, when you're going to a movie theater, when you're going shopping at some point during your week or every two weeks, if you're a true urbanite and you drive five miles a day and it takes you an hour you know, that's, you're going to be able to find those 20 minutes to plug in and charge up your vehicle. And then that's going to be the charge that you live with for a week and a half or two weeks. And it's going to be fine. So I don't yeah. really see that as an issue. If, if having fuel, if having your source of fuel at home was truly the end all be all, we'd all be driving natural gas because that's what's in our homes. Like literally most, especially here in the Midwest, that's the big deal. So that rant over, I think that's great. What you're doing. The second thing is you know, you're talking about doing this with a lens towards equity. So I want to ask what that looks like really. And I don't mean to put you on the hot seat because I know you're, you're an ally and like, we're all on the same team here, but you know, when we talk about putting public funds and public EV charging into the ground here in Chicago, 95% of the public charging stations are in the two wealthiest zip codes, mm -hmm. which is like, if you want to talk about an embarrassment, that's where people probably have a fast charger in their home on the North side. Like yeah. they don't need a public one. They wouldn't use a public one because God knows who touched it last. You know what I mean? So I, I want to speak to that. And then the other issue that I would have is, 
or that I want to ask is what do you do to protect the chargers? Because here in Chicago, there was a very famous project where they put some, you know, chart public charging near some accessible housing and literally between the night of putting them in and the next morning for the photo shoot, all the cables got slashed and the copper got stolen. Oh man. <laughs> but like okay. that's Chicago. Like honestly, yeah. that's the South side of Chicago. You kind of expect that. And honestly, nobody seemed that surprised. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, we we're very data driven. Our agency, the ways that we use data are very, very granular. So, you know, we've got maps of where every single multifamily dwelling is on, you know, in our whole territory. And it gets broken down into like little red dots and little squares of one square mile. So we figure out where the most multifamily housing density is. And then we work with cities. to find. Yeah. So we're actually like, like really, really hyper-focused on who would buy EVs if they could and making it accessible and convenient for these people. And granted, you know, sometimes these areas include people of all economic backgrounds. Yeah. Not, not necessarily going to be the most, the richest or the most impoverished neighborhood, but it's going to include a lot of people who would stand to benefit from But that's a really good point too. Like, you know, we're very, or I am very dismissive of people who are, are, you know, super high income, but it is a fact that you might have a penthouse in an apartment building, but you still don't have access to your own home charger. Right. So like that is something worth considering. And when you look at this from a community perspective, you have to provide for every member of that community, for every member of that community. And, and you want it to be, you want it to be publicly accessible you want it to be in a place where there are amenities. So we're looking for, you know, parking lots in front of libraries, in front of shopping centers, in front of businesses um, where there's high foot traffic. And for, you know, if, if you've got a longer charge, if you're going to be there for 25 minutes, you can walk away, get your coffee, pick up, you know, drop off your library mm-hmm. books and get back in time. Isn't that wild? Like, think about what you just said. If you have a longer charge and you're looking to kill 25 25 minutes, 25 minutes, like five years ago, we were talking about four hours and now it's uh, 25 minutes. Well, you know, and that's, that's where the people are. You know, I remember in the eighties, I saw a special on 60 minutes that you weren't alive in the eighties. Stop. Yeah. There's a little, little Sprite watching 60 minutes ahead of my time and they did a piece on how a short order cook could time you know cooking bacon eggs answer the phone do all these things but your brain has like uh, an anchor and it anchors to certain amounts of time so if you're used to you know getting your egg cooked in two and a half minutes your brain basically memorizes that's two and a half minutes it's not going to want you to cook it for any longer or any shorter Mm -hmm. and once we anchor to you know we, we we were, we were okay with four hours of charge, but now we're okay with 45 minutes where nobody's going to be happy with going back to four hours. No, so it's that, not going to happen. But yeah, I it's think it's also, it's also a sad commentary that like, I am willing to stand at a coffee shop for 25 minutes and not even, it doesn't even phase me. Like that right. should be the offensive part. Like, oh, you just plug in, you go get your cup of coffee and then you're done. It's like, <laughs> it takes you 25 minutes to get a cup of coffee. Like, could you well, imagine in reality, you know, <laughs> I know you do. You'll be on your phone answering work emails. You'll get things done. <laughs> but we, wow. <laughs> was, for those of you listening, that is not what's happening. 
Oh, okay. Well, hey, during the pandemic, I a lot of me and my my colleagues, we all learned how to you know multitask while you know yeah. in target. I, I don't want I don't want people to know that I'm actually working. I got a rep to protect. <laughs> But uh, so I mean, this is this is all really good stuff, and and I just, you know, I I really hesitate to say anything critical about it because it it does seem so good. I guess my only question would be, you know, we talk about the only the things that possibly could come up as people to criticize what you're doing, but you know, you have answers for that. Like if somebody says, well, you're just moving the emissions to a coal plant, you know, mm-hmm. we already covered how you're you're your company and your, your, I don't want to call it a company, right? Your co-op is, yeah, yeah, the agency is working with sustainable, you know, sustainable sources of energy and things like that. How, you know, if I was a good podcast host, what would I ask you now? I think you'd ask me like how we would, how this setup would benefit the California grid, because, you know, as we move towards solar and wind, like how, how are we going to help balance the load? You yeah. know, because that's a big issue. It, California is huge. We use so much electricity and we've got a huge mandate to, I think, let's see. I think our state is mandated to go carbon-free by or neutral by 2045. And in yeah. my territory, we're, we're doing it by 2030. So we gave ourselves a, an even higher mandate. But that's the th- like when we get these chargers installed, like my dream is to give people a discount for that. The duck curve time, yeah. you know, like what? So what, what I was hoping we were going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I want it. So but it, it it's it all speaks to the same thing. Right. I was I was hoping we were going to get into some net metering stuff because I know that's that was a real big issue a couple of months ago that California was going to move away from net metering and then. It didn't really. And then there was like kind of a pushback from the utility section saying, you know, like SoCal Edison was saying that it wasn't sustainable, that it was going to pay out these billions of dollars to to all of the the consumers at retail prices. And it wouldn't be able to sustain because of the way the the mandate was and capped them, I think, to like 8% of profits. But then the pushback that I saw was that the executives that were lobbying against this were actually bringing home like $20 million paychecks when you can, when you counted their stock options and everything else. So it was like, well, there's your money right there that you don't want to pay back. So, you know, when you talk about the grid and and upgrading the grid and, and reinforcing that there is definitely a role to play for that in terms of having that solar backup, having battery backups in the home, having, homes that generate some of their own power to reduce that load and having incentive programs to take advantage of, you know, smart, smart grid technology and and that eventually will come. Right. But I think the the question that I would have is number one, how do you navigate that as the laws are seem to be in flux so constantly? And number two, it, it does seem like you guys, at least to now have been really successful in doing that. How can you, how do you work with other communities across the country to try to replicate that success? So is your question about net energy meeting metering um, specifically or I think just know? in general, right? Because it's such a huge issue. It It and- is a huge issue. And I think, you know, we've definitely been there for the CPUC proceedings for the regulatory agency for California and, and um, weighed in on what we think is fair 
to make sure that agencies like ours, which are the community choice aggregators, that we're not thrown under the bus when when they're addressing these issues, which are very important issues about equity, to be frank, it's uh, all of our ratepayers um, who've been left on the investor-owned utility side have been subsidizing, you know, um, rooftop solar for yeah. decades now. So and they're you know, subsidizing they- rooftop solar for people who own the home, who can afford the down payment, who can afford all that, and 100%. who got and who got huge incentives you know, when they installed. Yeah. And they got more now with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Right. So, you know, I think there, it is time to to look at all this. I'm not an expert in, in all of the intricacies of the proceedings and all of the, the different things that those uh, board members have to weigh, but, you know, we just stay focused on what we can do as a public agency, which is getting those projects done that put jobs and money and clean electricity back into our community. And so whatever's going to happen with net energy meetings, metering is going to happen. In the meantime, you know, before those changes happen with um, NEM, like, I don't know if we're on 2.0 or 3.0 right now. I think we're talking about 3.0. In the meantime, we are assisting people with getting battery and solar on their homes, whether or not that's going to still pencil out when the new rulings come down? Not sure, but we're going to work under, you know, the current guidelines in the meantime and and make sure that people have all of the assistance that they need to take advantage of any incentives that they have in place and programs that we have running right now. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's that's a really great answer, right? You have to go with the tools that you have available to you and work within the limitations that you have. You know, and and I think my second question was, you know, how do we, because like I'm listening to you and I'm in Chicago and we have listeners who are in Austin, which I think you're going to be in Austin. We'll talk about that. In a oh, second. I was, I was a couple of weeks ago. I still have some mosquito bites that I just can't shake. Oh no, it's <laughs> terrible. They don't bite me. They they bite other people. They just oh, leave me alone. I was the last <laughs> standing under the Congress street bridge on a, a Wednesday night in the oh. dark and I got eaten alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's that's horrible. I'm sorry, but I'm sure that you did some good work down there, and there were people there in Austin listening to you who want to have this kind of you know successful program in their own community, but they don't know if it exists. They don't know how to find it. They don't know if it's even some because you know we, we kind of have 50 little individual countries that all have different laws about utilities and electricity and buying and selling and all that. Oh, like, and Texas is its whole whole it's its own whole no, thing. No, no, I think it was its own whole thing. I think that was right. <laughs> I think that we didn't mean for that to work, but it worked. Um, I mean, but just like in terms of the energy markets, they've separated themselves. Yeah, and they've separated themselves from the grid as well, from the 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 smart grids. Yep. Yeah. So they, yeah, hopefully they're, they're rethinking that as they rethink their gubernatorial leadership. Yeah. It, it's a mess, but anyway, Diane, it, it it's just been so awesome to talk to you and catch up a little bit, you know, for everybody who's listening, I just want to say that, you know, she is so much busier than you or I, and for her to be able to make the time for this is really generous. I know she's a, a clean technica fan and you should definitely follow her along. She will be president one day. I promise ah, you. Anyway, yeah, well, 
I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah, follow me <laughs> at Emeryville Die at uh, Emeryville D I. Um, Emeryvilledie.com. Not not for any good energy commentary. It's just for snarky, mostly housing and transpo stuff. But um. perfect. That's what we want to know. Where do we get the snark? Maximum snark. All right. Thank you so much. If you're listening along here, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You're probably not on Anchor FM, but uh, if you're one of the Anchor FM people, thanks for uh, being on that too, I guess. Diane, anything else? Or are we good? No, thank you so much, Joe. It's always a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you. I feel like we could talk for a few more hours. Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.